0: Hello and welcome to the PastCast, I'm Callum Henderson. Coming up on this week's episode... In a couple of years' time you'll
1: see these objects in a whole new light, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll really be transformed.
0: What the latest research tells us about the Galloway Horde, one of Scotland's most fascinating treasures. Plus, behind the scenes at the new British Museum exhibition on the life of Nero. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Past, a brand new website that brings together the most exciting stories and the very best writing from the realms of archaeology, history, heritage, and the ancient world. You can subscribe to The Past today for just 7 99 a month by visiting our website at the-past.com forward slash subscribe. Now, in around AD 900, a stunning collection of diverse materials and treasures from Ireland, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and as far away as Asia, was buried in Southwest Scotland, where it lay undisturbed for over one thousand one hundred years, found by metal detectorists in twenty fourteen The Galloway Horde, as it came to be known, remains the richest collection of rare and unique Viking age objects ever found in Britain or Ireland, following a fundraising appeal, the hoard was saved by the National Museums of Scotland, whose staff have been working ever since to preserve and understand the hoard's contents. The discoveries to date are the subject of a new exhibition, Galloway Hoard, Viking Age Treasure, currently running at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. To discuss the hoard in more detail, I spoke to Dr. Martin Goldberg, Principal Curator of Medieval Archaeology and History at the Museum. In my conversation with him, I was joined by my past cast colleague, Carly Hiltz. So... Martin I was hoping we could start by uh, talking a bit about how the Galloway hoard came to the National Museum Scotland. It was
1: allocated uh, to National Museum Scotland in two th- 2017 as uh, by the Scottish um, allocation finds panel and um it's through the treasure trove process that that we were we were given the opportunity to uh, um, to acquire the hoard, to save the hoard for the nation. And we were given six months to fundraise uh, £1.98 million. And it was just this incredible roller coaster. Um, we created a small display that showed some of the objects, you know, rough and ready as they came out of the ground. And I kept telling people back then, you know, in a couple of years' time, you'll see these objects in a whole new light. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll really be transformed. And it was the public response during those six months that was really heartening, really incredible interest. Uh, the number of visitors and tours, people just, you know, really interested and in, engaged with the material. And I think what we've tried to capture um, in the exhibition that we're putting on now is that it's still an ongoing process. I think it was the, the, the sort of prospects of, of what we could learn that really captured people's interests back in 2017. And so we're trying to build on that further by showing people the process that we've been through. So this isn't the final story of the hoard. This is where we're at right now. And we're about to begin another um, research program in over the next three years. Um, that will take take the story on a little bit further.
0: Yes, Martin. Um, I was just wondering if we could break it down and go through the hoard in a bit more detail. Um, as you say in your article, there are four layers to the finds. Uh, would you be able to take me through each of them and discuss what they contain?
1: Yeah. Well, this structure to the hoard is quite unusual, and uh, you know, it's it's imagining the sort of the hands that buried it in the past. You know, and the care that they took in arranging it in a particular way and, and wrapping the objects and this careful parceling into four groups and two different layers um, so that's also the structure that we would use in the exhibition it's the easiest way to take people through the the, the objects so at the top there is um what you might consider typical silver bullion for the viking age um Hiberno Scandinavian broadband arm rings that give us a date for the hoard. It's roughly 880 to 930 AD. And then silver ingots that are fairly common in bullion hoards as well. But whenever you look at any of these parcels, there is always something unusual and different and unexpected. And so the major unexpected item in the top layer of the hoard is this beautiful uh, pectoral cross. And um, that would have been worn on the chest and still has this very fine spiral chain uh, wrapped around it, almost as if it's just been taken, you know, from somebody's neck and wrapped up and, and buried in the ground. And the the style of that, um, the decoration that has been revealed through our conservation work is late Anglo-Saxon, Trewiddle-style uh, decoration. So again, it's something unusual. It's not what you would expect necessarily in a, in a Viking Age hoard. Then there is a layer of natural gravel that um, when, the, when the, the finders and the, the excavator were um, finished lifting that top layer, they thought they were done because it looked like natural gravel underneath. And just for uh, to check, they, they ran the metal detector over the base of what they thought was the pit. And they were still getting this booming signal. So they dug through this, this redeposited natural gravel. And there is this much richer layer underneath with three parcels in it. And so the first parcel is twice as much silver bullion as was in the top layer, wrapped in leather, quite a tight bundle of it. Um, This unusual arm ring cluster that is a a different type of arm ring, a more elaborate type called a ribbon arm ring uh, with with much finer decoration. And these ones aren't flattened and folded and and reduced to bullion like the rest of the Hiberno-Scandinavian broadband arm rings. The ribbon arm rings are as they would have been worn. So they have been shaped to be worn, but they've been knitted together into a cluster. So there are four of them and there is a, a smaller silver band that's holding them all together at the back, almost like a, a contract binding these, these four together. And in the middle of that, nestled in the middle of this cluster of arm rings, is a wooden box with three gold items in it. And again, gold is, is not as common in Viking Age hordes as, as the silver bullion that we've seen elsewhere. Um, there are three gold items, a ring, a gold ingot, and this beautiful gold bird pin. Um, and then the third parcel in the bottom uh, layer is by far the richest and most unusual collection of items. So it's a silver gilt vessel with a lid and the vessel was wrapped in layers of textile. And then it's within that vessel that are the most unusual and distinctive items and materials that we wouldn't normally expect to find in a Viking Age hoard at all so you can think about it as the layers you can think about it as the different parcels but probably the easiest way to conceptualize the whole thing is that there is a, a, a massive silver bullion in various parcels and then this other thing this this almost like a treasury within this silver lidded vessel and the
0: vessel itself is quite special isn't it I think there's some Some exciting new information about its decoration and what that might tell us about its origins?
1: Yes. So it's um, there are three or or this is one of three silver gilt vessels that have been used as Viking Age hoard containers. And we fully expected um, that this one would be something like the other two. It might shed some new light on the origins of those vessels um, that are thought to be from the Carolingian Empire in, in Western Europe. Um, But we did uh, 3D x-ray imaging uh, in partnership with the British Museum and then Glasgow School of Art have helped us stitch uh, that data together into a 3D model of the vessel. And this has allowed us to reveal the decoration without damaging the the very fragile textiles that are wrapping it so we can carry on um, our conservation and research on those textile elements and still show people in the exhibition what we think this vessel was. And and it's amazing actually to see what it looked like. The big shock for me was that it wasn't again what I was expecting and and not what anyone else would expect either. There is a central icon. So the, the decoration is divided into four medallions and in the center of each medallion is a Zoroastrian fire altar. Um underneath that is a crown with uh, wings. And then there are vegetation scrolls that are occupied by uh, leopards and tigers. And so the leopards and the tigers were the first indication that we were looking at something exotic, but it's not out of the realms of possibility that those types of creatures could be copied in Western in Europe. But the Zoroastrian fire altar is sort of a, a key piece of, of evidence that tells us this isn't a Christian vessel like the Carolingian ones. This is a vessel that is used in a different uh, belief system and was probably produced in Central Asia, I imagine sometime between the years 600 and 800 AD. Um, We also got a preliminary date from um, some of the textile wrapping of the vessel, and it produced, again, a surprising date, surprisingly early, Uh, 680 to 780 AD so it looks like we've got a combination of evidence there that tells us it's come from much further away than we expected thousands of miles instead of hundreds of miles and it's potentially much older than than we would have expected as well.
0: Yes well I mean there are many uh, fascinating objects within this collection many of which are unique. Do you have a personal favourite?
1: It's it's really hard actually to pick one because there is so much variety. Um, I actually have a background in in silver research, and um, I have done you know as much as I can with the silver uh, for now. But it's really the other materials, the whole range of materials that are that are especially in the vessel. So there's uh, can I do two? Is that OK? yes, absolutely. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's like it's the contrast from one to the other. So there is this amazing little rock crystal jar um, that's that's wrapped up in a, a, a leather pouch that's silk lined. And so it's got that mixture of organic material and it's got a curious mix of, of inorganic um, core object. It looks like it it's a reused rock crystal column that's uh, from the roman Empire in in its origin and the um the parallels I've found are in the Vatican collection and they're coming out of um or one of them is coming out of an early Christian catacomb in Rome, and so it looks like they are pillars of of crystal rock crystal. I don't know what the function of these objects are yet, but ours is a fragment um of the capital of a column that has then been turned upside down and wrapped in gold um gold plates on the bottom that are filigree decorated and a gold lid with a, a, a golden spout and so you've got this beautiful carved rock crystal and um it's, it's gold mounted but it's still wrapped in this silk lined pouch and it potentially is over 500 years old in its origin and then what we're going to try and do in the future is reconstruct its biography by looking at the gold looking at the silk looking at the leather you know we've got all sorts of avenues there to pursue to build a really rich biography of this one object and then I guess my second choice because I'm I'm indecisive at the moment it seems is the other extreme again quite quite near this this crystal jar at the bottom of the vessel are two balls of dirt and um we were just baffled at first by what these things were and why they were in amongst silk and gold and rock crystal and all of these sort of luxury materials and items. And so you have to think that there is a reason behind that. These are something special in themselves. And I'd come across a reference to earthen relics, um, earth that was taken from pilgrimage sites and brought back by the pilgrims um, to their homes and so it's like a, a way of capturing the essence of the sacred and and bringing it back with you um the parallels again there are few and far between but amongst the most prominent ones that i have found are again the vatican collections in rome where there are these earthen relics but it seems like the um the papal collection is interested in acquiring earthen relics from sites in the Holy Land, and it's particularly in this time frame between 650 and 900, these earthen relics are coming back to the papal collection, and they're from all the sites that you would read about in the Bible: Bethlehem, the banks of the River Jordan, and the Temple of the Holy Sepulchre. So, it's a hypothesis, and the dirt balls sort of really capture your imagination and then the preliminary analysis that we've done on them especially through the work of um conservator dr mary davis she um noticed microscopic traces of of gold uh possibly gilding and so we know that these were rolled in an environment that had gilded objects and and this this you know would increase the hypothesis of it being from a sacred shrine somewhere there's tiny little bits of bone in there and other organic material so there's great potential in these small sort of Malteser sized balls of dirt for all sorts of future analysis.
0: Fantastic um, you mentioned before your your research background lies in in silver uh, when you were writing for us you talked about a, a common silver economy and and and, and so on I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about what the hoard tells us about the, the Irish Sea world and society at the time?
1: So it, it does both things. You can really slot this into the picture of other hoards around the Irish Sea zone. Um, there is evidence in the silver for the arm rings being measured out um, according to standardised unit weights, um, the types of weights that are commonly found in the, the marketplace in Dublin. Viking Age settlement in Dublin um, the arm rings themselves are you know comparable to a lot of finds in Ireland um, and then some larger hordes in in Wales and northern England and now we sort of complete the picture with the Galloway horde at the top of the Irish Sea so the Irish Sea is like the the economic crucible for for this new influx of silver and again we've um We've partnered up with uh, the University of Oxford, who are running a, a large project that's looking at silver in the earliest Viking Age. And so the Galloway Horde is interesting to them as a British example of, of a phenomenon that they're looking at on, a, on an international scale, tracking the sources of silver, either from the Islamic world or the coinage of the Carolingian Empire or Anglo-Saxon coinage. And so they're doing isotopic analysis of some of the silver. And hopefully we can, um, in the future, say something about the origins of our silver and make connections with the other materials, the silks that might be travelling from Central Asia or somewhere in Asia, um, the vessel that we now think is Central Asian, um, and some of the other exotic materials might help us reconstruct the sort of trajectories that bring all these objects together in this this particular deposit.
0: Yes, um, I have some other questions. I mean, I was wondering how the hoard itself simply ended up in the ground. Um, was it for protection? I mean, I gather that there were traces of buildings at the discovery site.
1: Yeah, there, there are tantalising glimpses of what might be there at the site. Um, there was um, a small excavation that was done immediately after The hoard was discovered, and that was to make sure that all the material was collected. Some of the top layer had been disturbed by the plough. So there was a a sort of strip and map excavation done by AOC archaeology, and they plotted a a variety of structural features around the hoard. And it looks like it is within a building. And so there is a a really important context there to be explored in the future that can only illuminate the story of, of how the deposit. Uh, ended up in the ground. I think for you know coming up with the sort of grand narrative of what happened on the day or what's happening in the, the decades around that um, is the work of, of future decades possibly. Um, the, my job at the moment is to just gather as much information about the objects as possible to provide that foundation. And I think once we've sort of knitted together every story that each object has and bring them all together, analyze them in their groups, their comparable materials, the other hoards that may or may not compare to this one. Um, then we can we can build up that narrative slowly, but it needs to have a really solid um, evidential base to start with.
0: And um talking of research, you mentioned that there's a, a three year research project that's about to kick off focusing on on the hoard. Uh, what's that going to involve? What will you be looking at?
1: So it's um, we're using this hoard as an example of um, the practice of hoarding. So what can we learn about the broader reasons? So getting to the question that you just asked me, you know, why is it there? Why is it buried? We'll be looking at other um, hoarding projects to see what we can learn from them. But our main focus will be bringing together different specialists that are gonna work on the various materials. So while the the, the bulk of the objects are on, um, are on display and touring Scotland um, n- until next year, we'll be focusing on the textiles uh, for the first year. We have a textile specialist, um, Dr. Susanna Harris, and um, another Dr. Alexandra Makin, who will be working on the textiles for the first couple of years and um, focusing on why things are wrapped, how they're wrapped, identifying a lot of the the textiles so that we can reconstruct. It looks like everything within the vessel just about was wrapped in some way, Uh, but some of that got disturbed and there is a sort of textile jigsaw that we have to put back together to reconstruct and then, of course, that opens up once we've identified the material, catalogued it, it opens up the possibility of doing other types of analysis of so proteomics on the leather um, dye analysis, potentially on some of the, the other fabrics and radiocarbon dating of to try and reconstruct how this, especially this sealed collection within the vessel, how it might have come together over time. And of course, that date that we got from the wrapping of the vessel itself gives us an indication that there are heirloom objects, older objects and and potentially a long chronology for for how this particular collection came together.
0: Brilliant. So much more information still to come. It's exciting.
1: Uh, A lot of information still to come. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it.
0: Thanks again, Martin. And make sure to visit the exhibition if you can. It runs at the National Museum of Scotland until 12th of September this year. Entry is free with pre-booked tickets, which you can order online at the museum's website. And don't forget to check out Martin's article for us on the hoard, which is available to read now on the Past website, as well as in the latest issue of Current Archaeology. But it's not the only gallery to have recently opened a fascinating show. In London, the British Museum has just unveiled a new exhibition on the life and legacy of Nero, who reigned as Roman Emperor from October 54 until his suicide in June 68 AD. Infamous for supposedly fiddling while Rome burned, this exhibition seeks to challenge the widespread image of Nero as a violently destructive tyrant, and encourage visitors to see the figure in a new light. Earlier this week, I went along to the exhibition's press viewing and caught up with curator Francesca Bologna. Francesca, thanks very much for joining me. Um, We're actually in the middle of the exhibition itself. Um, I just wanted to begin with, we were talking earlier about how it was a bit difficult to put it together during COVID times. Can you tell me how you got it together finally?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it was challenging. But I have to say, first of all, that all of the lenders really were extremely helpful in the UK, throughout Europe. They were fantastic. Keep in mind that they were working from home, just like us. And despite all these, they still helped us. It was incredible. And this said, it, it was of course challenging because of, lo- of, course of the, all the travel ban. So the, the, I guess the main challenge was uh, the actual installation. So normally you have couriers coming with the objects and they are here while you install and they check that everything is, is done properly and they check their objects because of course it's their objects, they love them. We, we all love our objects. And, and we could not, just could not do it now at this time. So they showed what I think is an incredible amount of, of, of trust, as in they send the objects to us. And then we managed to install everything remotely. So we would set up video calls and and so on. And, and they agreed to it. We tried everything we could to give them the next best thing to them being here mm-hmm. <laughs> to install, But of course, it's, it was not the same, despite everything we tried to do. And but still it worked, and again they they were extremely trusting and and we are extremely grateful for their trust and but it worked, and they, it at last all the objects are here, and this, and the exhibition has been installed, and people will be soon coming in, so looking forward to it
0: I was just talking with some of my colleagues about. How very striking the the lighting, sometimes the lack of lighting, at least initially is. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what your decision process in putting together the the objects?
2: Yeah, okay, of course. Uh, so, um, the uh, the designer's idea for this exhibition was to create this sort of idea of contrast between. Uh, Backstage and center stage, so the lighting works in creating this sort of this idea of of drama. The designers were trying to uh, to convey. So we have some uh, darker section where, however, by uh, lighting quite startlingly the the objects we really bring them to life because, of course, on a sort of dark background, you notice them all the more and then we have this big beac- what, what i i call to myself this beacon of light where we're sitting right now mm-hmm. which is at uh, the section where we talk about the the domus area so nero's palace and i call it beacon of light because it's literally as you walk through the exhibition you see this this white luminous shape that's, that's start taking shape and when you enter you are eventually in this sort of uh, domed uh, area where we tried to recreate the famous uh, octagonal room of the Domus Aurea. So there was sort of also this, uh, this idea. And lighting, of course, helped us in, in and this, uh, this result, which I hope people are going to enjoy. <laughs> Did you?
0: Yes, I think it's fascinating, I have to say, yeah. Do you think there's any individual objects that uh, visitors should look out for in particular? Perhaps your own personal favourites or ones that really challenge this um, idea of Nero as a, a tyrant?
2: Um there's quite a few really, but I think one of the uh, most striking, the one I particularly like, is uh, this graffito from Pompeii. So we literally have part of a wall that comes from a house in Pompeii where someone decided to scratch, of all things, a poem. A poem when he, he tells us about how uh, Popeia, uh, w- which was Nero's wife at the time, and Nero made offerings to uh, the Temple of Venus in Pompeii. So I, well, first of all, I, l- I love it because of the immediacy. You Just there, you have the wall in front of you, you can Im- almost imagine this person uh, scratching the poem on the wall. And also, also, I think it clearly showed that... Uh, well, uh, these uh, people did not quite necessarily share this negative uh, view of Nero that came down to us.
0: Yeah, I mean, what struck me already, we're not even finished, we're not just looking at Nero, we're looking at um, the different figures that were also around him in his life, particularly some of the women. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a bit more about that?
2: Yes, of course. Um, I mean, first of all, Women uh, with this new political system, the principate, started by Augustus, women, imperial women, reached a unprecedented preemin- preeminence. So the Roman word was not exactly a, uh, a word made for women; <laughs> it was a male-dominated word. But with Augustus, uh, the, the women of the imperial family became extremely important, and we see it quite strikingly with Nero, because of course there are quite some quite famous women a, in his life uh, and one of these is of course Agrippina so Nero's mother she under Claudius already the previous emperor she reached a unprecedented uh, preeminence and she continued to do so under Nero we see at the very beginning of Nero's reign she's almost a like a regent which is unheard of in the Roman word and and she's not the only one so of, ca- of course the story goes uh, nero then has uh, agrippina killed and in if we are to believe the sources in a reader far fetched plan that involved a collapsible boat because apparently poison was too mainstream and yeah apparently he tried with poison but she survived so i mean you have to get inventive at that point <laughs> so i mean I, i'm joking about it but just to, to stress that if we are just to believe the sources the stories that come out are quite far fetched sometimes so we have. Agrippina, which is of, of course plays an important role until uh, she is uh, killed or maybe forced to take her own life, that, this is quite unclear. And an important figure that we have is Popea. So Popea is Nero's second wife, and if we are to believe the sources, she basically she almost lures him and she beguiling him to the point that he convinced him to divorce and banish and execute his first wife I mean interesting story, how much of it is is actually true we will never know, likely not much and yes yeah, so I guess these are the two main uh, important female characters in his life but <laughs> this is just to touch upon it really
0: Yeah I mean you've talked about how much we think we know about Nero and what's, what we possibly don't actually know. I mean, ver- there's quite a lot about him that's unclear. And obviously, one of the big subjects that the museum, the exhibition tries to tackle is that the, his, um, his legacy, his reign, his empire was written largely by people who were unfavorable to him. and The exhibition is really making an effort to challenge this. Would you say that's right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You exactly got the point. In a, in a way, it is exhibition. Yes, it's on Nero. But the main uh, theme of the whole exhibition is about how history is written and how we should approach information uh, critically. So in the case of Nero's, everything we, we think we know <laughs> about him comes from historical accounts that were written after, he, after his death. And the point is, now we, th- we, s- we think about historians and historical account as something absolutely or as objective as possible as, and, and but as unbiased as possible, but actually Roman historians when the wrote history they had a really clear agenda in mind. And in this specific case all of these historians were writing where a new dynasty was in power. And in order to uh, present uh, this new dynasty uh, in the most favourable light because they came to power after uh, one year of civil war. Uh, the so the best way to repre- to represent this new dynasty, the Flavians, in a good light was to basically uh, instead uh, represent the previous dynasty and especially the last of of them in the worst possible light. Nero happened to be the last of the Julio Claudians, of course he suffered his uh, really uh, ugly uh, fate, and and that's uh, essentially the origin of this very negative uh, uh, image we have of him, which has endured.
0: Okay, Francesca, thanks very much. Just one last question. Do you want to talk a bit more about the graffiti?
1: (laughs) I'd love to know, because
0: sometimes, you know, we don't quite think of Roman Empire, perhaps we don't, we think of it as objects and statues and stuff like that, but what about the graffiti that fascinates you so much?
2: Um, I'm particularly fascinated by graffiti because they are so so immediate. I mean, it's historical accounts and literature from the time is is gives you an incredible amount of information, of course, but these were these were works that were written with a lot of thought behind them whereas graffiti they would just scratch on the walls so we got this immediate sense of what the people would do and think at the time and we have some graffiti in this exhibition, and not as many as there wouldn't be if, <laughs> if it were for me. Uh, no, jokes aside, uh, we do have some graffiti uh, from Pompeii because, quite interestingly, we have... Uh, Nero is named quite a lot in Pompeii, is actually the most named emperor in Pompeii, despite the fact that there were the other Julio-Claudians uh, before him. And a couple of the Flavians uh, after him. So that, I think that's quite interesting. And we do have copies of some of the graffiti naming him and Popea, his second wife.
0: OK, thanks very much, Francesca. Thank you. i like you go on now. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I definitely encourage you to go see the exhibition if you can. It runs at the British Museum until 24th of October this year. And there will be plenty of coverage on it on the PASS website very soon. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Martin Goldberg and Francesca Bologna, and to Carly for joining me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to us and sharing it around. The Pastcast is available every week on Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, and from wherever else that you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again soon.